So tonight is December 10th, 2008. Our topic tonight will be the resurrection. And uh, I hope that it will end up being a discussion. I encourage you to ask questions, uh, to do whatever you can to make sure that everybody has a clear understanding of what we're talking about. Uh, turn to Corinthians 15. Tell me when you're there. There. I was sick and sweaty with fever all last night and uh, woke up praising God that the work that Mandy and I had scheduled for today outdoors in a chemical plant was canceled. And uh, I want to tell you, I feel much better. And God is good. He does not leave us down or let us down. Uh, we can do this this way now um, because we've got an area, Mike. Anybody want to read in a loud voice, starting in Corinthians 15.1? I'm going to interrupt you frequently. Yeah, start. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Does anybody know anything special about the opening phrase there? Now, brothers, I want to remind you. Good, then I'll get, then I'll get to remind you. This is a very Hebrew phrase. It's recorded in Greek, and in Greek it transliterates as best as we can, just like this. But the way that a rabbi would speak to his students when he expected them to memorize something is this exact word ordering. And when he says, now brothers, I want to remind you, what he is quite literally saying is, I want to remind you of what you should already have memorized and be able to recite verbatim. I want to be the first to admit to you I can't do that. Uh, I cannot recite verbatim Corinthians 15. But this Jewish lifestyle of education meant that that was what had been passed to them, and they very much taught in that same vein. So the people that he's teaching this to could finish his sentences. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And yet, they didn't always get the right interpretation. So knowledge of Scripture is not all there is. We need the Holy Ghost to show us what it means, and then we need to take our stand on it. But having said that, it's the only place in all Paul's writings that this appears. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is this was the central theme of his message. This is who Paul is, what he's telling us here. It's the beating heart of his ministry. Go ahead, Nick. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. But what I received I pass on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. We're going to hold there for a minute. Most people have taken that, what he just said, to be the gospel. That which needed to be reminded uh, that Jesus died and rose again. That's not at all uh, the entirety of the gospel. This is simply where it starts. Paul's going to take two literary asides during this chapter. One is, he gets into a discussion uh, about how he came to faith. Uh, he gets sidetracked here for a moment. And the second is, he addresses a question that is in the church at the time about baptism for the dead. And uh, 
if you remove those two things, not that you have to remove them for it to make sense, but if you're able to cut them out for a second and read it, what you would see is one fluid story from beginning to end that centers around the resurrection of the dead. He addresses these two other areas because they're important to the local body. There's grumbling about who is this Paul anyway. Who does he think he is? He's bold in his letters and when he comes here he's not like that. So he speaks about how he comes to faith. There's a problem in the church at the time centering around the teaching of the resurrection for the dead. So he's going to address that. But all of this whole chapter is in the vein of who Paul is and what he teaches. Okay? So keep going. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then... It was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. Isn't it amazing that Paul has no problem saying he outworked everybody else? He must have really done that. That must be beyond contestation if uh, he's going to say it publicly in a letter open to the churches. Would you think that that was arrogant to say that? I mean... Let's say it's not Paul who said it. Let's say that uh, Gabriel may have stood up here today and said, look, I outworked all of you. Yeah, you you might see that as arrogant, huh? The The work that he had been given, though, was given by Jesus. And you remember his calling? What did Jesus say to him? What you must suffer in my name. And what he did, quite literally, was out-suffer all of them. This is why we love the man, and it's also why it's not arrogant. Uh, one time he breaks down one of his letters and says, I've been beaten more frequently, I've gone without food more often, and been more pressed by my concern for the churches, basically, than anybody you know. Uh, I say all that to say, what he's teaching and uh, what he's reminding the church of is his life, and he's reminding them of that. Uh, I'm going to pick up in 12 for a minute, then let Nick pick back up. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, Do you hear a bit of, not sarcasm, but almost amazement in this question? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? It's kind of like, wow, you must be missing the whole point. If you understand Jesus was raised, how could some of you say there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Do you hear that the central theme of all of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection? Those two things, if that is not there, period, your faith is useless. So whether or not you get the drug dealer's Cadillac, whether or not God blessed you and gave you a great house, or whatever it is that people are appealing to you about, Paul says that the central theme of the gospel is Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection in Jesus, period. Other than that, it's all useless. Having said that, how often do you hear messages on resurrection on TV? How often do you... I tell you, you get an Easter message once a year. But it's the central theme of the gospel, period. Why would that be? It is our hope, but why is that our hope? Why is that the central theme? What is man's biggest problem? Death. What's the first problem that comes on the scene? Death. So if the gospel is going to be good news, the very first problem it has to solve is death. 
Incidentally, the Bible presents it as the first problem to enter mankind and the last problem to leave. That's, that's what begins the millennial reigns when death's put down for us. But it's the last enemy to be put down. What you're struggling with now is sickness. What you're struggling with now is resistance. What you're struggling with now everywhere all around us is the power of sin. But the first way it showed up is in death. And death has to be put down. This is the hope of the gospel. You can pick back up for a minute, Nick. Starting 20. And 20? Yeah. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Put on your Jewish hats. What's the word first fruits mean? Uh, it would bring to mind the feast of first fruits. What do you do at the feast of first fruits? I'm bring the first part of the good harvest to show that there's more to come. You go get a representative sample. You get the very best that there is out in the field. Do you know how you bound it? What you bound it with? A scarlet cord. You took that scarlet cord and you waved it before the temple, the house of God, for everyone to see, promising that God had given this part of the harvest first, the rest would also come in. When Jesus called, or when Paul calls Jesus the first fruits, what he's saying is that God wrapped him in a scarlet cord, waved him before the house of God, saying, just as this is the harvest, all the rest is going to come in. This is the promise. The people who are hearing this would know that because every year, whether they're Corinthian or Jews living in Corinth, every year they're seeing the Feast of First Fruits. So it's not a foreign concept to them. We just read it as uh, it's the First Fruits. You know, this was something that they couldn't mistake. Now, what I'm going to show you as we go, and this is not the rapture teaching that we had last week. Last week I wanted you to understand how historically young the rapture teaching is is that what they emphasize over and over and over and over is always the resurrection. And it gets a bit ridiculous to try to put the phrase caught up in the air into all of these sentences. It does not make sense. And if the word rapture is never used, that's why, why, do, why is that the only thing we talk about? Keep going, Nick. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. When will the end come? He has to destroy death before the end will come. What does he do when the end comes? He hands everything back over to the Father, completely submitted to him. Now friends, what are we talking about the end of? This might be a trick question for you. We hear the word sometimes this age or what will be the end of this age. And they'll say, this end here is not really the end of this age. It's the end of the next age. Having said that, and I'll show you that in Revelation 20 before we leave tonight. Okay? But what happens is we receive something just like Jesus did. There's a firstborn man, that's Jesus, raised from the dead. There will be a firstborn nation. Uh, Jews and Gentiles are all grafted into one holy nation of God called Israel, made up of actual Israelis, all Israel being saved, and Gentiles grafted into their blessing. All the nations will see that as a firstborn, firstfruits nation. The last enemy to be put down, we get it put down at the beginning of a millennial reign and a resurrection. For them, it does not go away till the end of the millennial reign. And then... There is no more death, no more sickness, no more tears, no more any wrongdoing in the creation. It is all in all God. This is the goal to which the Bible is shooting for. 
Jesus is reigning so that he can put everything under his feet and he's already perfectly submitted under the Father's feet. So what we have all in all is a revolution against these powers. That revolution will end in a complete, total, utter victory. And when there's victory on every side, then God is perfectly represented in everything, everywhere, at all times. Yes. So can you sum up that order again? Uh, well, we're going to do it some more uh, through this. But before you leave tonight, ask me that question again, okay? Please don't forget, Lindy. We will give you the order of His coming, the order of the millennium, the order of the great white throne judgment. Good. Okay. Uh, so keep going, Nick. <clears throat> For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, when he has done this then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Let me ask you something. If you came from a oneness background, and I don't know if anybody in here did, okay? I'll tell you, I have oneness leanings and I have trinity leanings, okay? I don't really like either one of those descriptions. What would you do with this scripture? It clearly, absolutely clearly, shows Jesus is distinct from the Father. Doesn't it? I mean, can you read that any other way? The reason for this is, Jesus is a glorified man. The fullness of the deity is in him, but he is a glorified man. That glorified man is not above the Father. The glorified man is perfectly submitted to the Father. The Father works through him. Uh, and Corinthians makes that clear. The Jewish understanding of Jesus as the Messiah cannot be that the Father and Jesus, uh, the man Jesus, are absolutely identical. It's that when you look at the work of Jesus, you are seeing the work of the Father. When you look at the character, the substance of Jesus, you are seeing the substance of the Father. Uh, but Jesus, the body, Jesus, had a point in time which it began. The Father doesn't. Do you, do you understand? That's a bigger teaching on the Godhead, and I, I get that. I just want you to understand, this place in the Scripture is impossible to deal with the idea of oneness. Uh, now, if your idea of oneness has to do with, well, there's God the body, there's God the Spirit, and then there's God the Father, that's okay. We're saying the same thing, we're just saying it in different ways. You don't like my terminology, I don't like yours. It's okay. Uh, God has got three parts. There's no way around that. At least three. Okay, keep going. We'll get back on on subject. He's going to deal with a problem here. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as sure, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, let's hold there. Number one, he calls a misunderstanding of this subject sin. Did you hear that? He said, come back to your senses and stop sinning. Well, what was the sinning? The sinning was claiming that there was no resurrection of the dead. There are some misunderstandings you're not allowed to have. <laughs> and, and this is one of them. We are not allowed to be ignorant about this subject because upon it hangs all of our faith. Period. And if we misunderstand it and we misrepresent it to the world, what will they do? 
If the guys who are supposed to be leading are blind, what will they do? Now, when he mentions baptism of the dead here, did you hear an endorsement for it? Did you hear that he said that you should be baptized for the dead? Uh, did he write in anything about Joseph Smith or a moron angel? No. No, he simply acknowledges that the practice has happened and he asks, well, why are you doing this if you don't believe in a resurrection? Why would you baptize at all if you don't believe in a resurrection? Baptism is quite simply a sign that your old life has died, that you are being raised to walk a new life in Christ. Now, God forbid, let's imagine that we are in a situation where there is a Roman Colosseum that has been built across the street by the food town. I have uh, recently been converted. My wife has recently been converted, and we're so excited, but our teenage son is slower to be converted. And he sees his mom and his dad suffer for the gospel and realizes the truthfulness of the faith and falls in love with Jesus. And that very same day, he is torn to pieces in the arena. This is a very real scenario in Corinth and Ephesus. Paul just mentioned fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. Could you see that we would want all of his friends, all of his family, to understand that before that happened, he had been lowered into a grave with Jesus and raised out with resurrection power? They were being baptized as a sign of faith to everyone that was around them, not out of some bizarre ritualistic fashion to uh, get people saved who are already dead. Uh, this is the only way that you could make this consistent with all the rest of the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that you baptize for the dead. I'm just suggesting that that must have been their motivation. Okay? And Paul says, if you're doing that, why would you do that if you don't believe in a resurrection? Something that he just didn't get. Okay? Okay. Uh, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined, and each kind of seed He gives its own body. What is this analogy? Who wants to explain it? What are you in the analogy? A seed. And when the seed dies, what happens to it? When it's buried in the ground, what happens to it? It grows and it comes back to life as something more glorious than the actual seed. And one kind of seed produces one kind of glorious plant and another kind another. What do you think he's trying to tell you? You're all going to be different in the resurrection. Okay, he's going to go on, and Jesus said this too in Luke. I'll show you to show you that it has something to do with the life that you've lived in this life. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed He gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and star differs from star uh, in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Have you ever read that Paul said he hoped to obtain a better resurrection? Well, what could be better than being in a body that would never die? Well, apparently these bodies are going to be different based on what you did in this life. Now, this is not what we tell kids in Sunday school usually. 
it's uh, actually almost never presented in Christian churches that John could have a better resurrection than Brandon. That's almost never presented. Why? It's presented over and Paul mentions it as his motivation maybe ten times in his epistles that he hopes to obtain a better resurrection. Something that moved him constantly was that he knew a day was coming that what he did in this life would be reflected in that life. Not in heaven with equality for all. That's not it. Yes. Um, that's something that's always got me like more better or more rewards for certain things done in this life because I just I think that I mean I get that God is a jealous God, but what kind of competition will there be in heaven where someone is like, oh man? They got a better resurrected body than me. That stinks. Well, no, I don't uh, think competition. Because if something is better, how is it better? Because someone recognizes that it has more value yeah. than something else. Uh, let's see, who's got a Bible open? Mandy, turn to Luke 14. Read whatever scripture is closest starting to the 12th verse. You know, wherever there's a paragraph break. By the way, number one, Nick, and good question. Don't think of when we get in heaven. Okay, This is step number one that is wrong. Heaven is not somewhere else. Heaven is coming here. Heaven is not some far off place. Heaven is going to be right here enveloping the earth. We'll probably do that next Wednesday. Okay, That, that talk. Not that heaven will envelop earth next Wednesday, but we'll talk on that. <laughs> secondly, secondly, when we talk about competition, no. When perfection has come, which is the resurrected body, we all know, even as we're known, we're like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. We are all children of the resurrection, Luke says. So that won't happen. But some will be in charge of much, and some will be in charge of little. Your, fu your function in that age will be determined by what you did in this age, and that will absolutely matter. Not matter out of some kind of selfish ambition, but it matters because you have been faithful much or you've been faithful little. To say, well, I just want to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Yeah. Well, why would that be our goal? Why would it not be your goal to be the very best that you can be for Jesus? Yeah. Okay? Uh, read Luke and then we'll take that question unless you think... Do you think... Well, I was just going to say, is that why that it talks about some will enter and escape into the fire? Yes. Yes, absolutely. He says you'll pass through as one naked, one escaping through the fire. And by the way, that city had just been burned. And he said that because that city had just been leveled with fire, so they understood the analogy. He said some of you are building with hay and some with straw, but some with precious stones. Well, those people had just seen their life's work burned up and some remained and others just had their lives. Absolutely that's the case. Star also differs from star, he said. We do want to read this. Yes, ma'am? The parable of the talents is the best example I can think of yes, offhand. I mean, but, I, I 100%. But you're saying, why does it matter in a perfect place? Well, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, to start with, okay, and we're going to get through this, but I do want to read Luke 14 because it will help us with it. To start with, when we are made perfect, the world is not yet perfect. Some are in charge of much, some are in charge of little. They are still dying and they are still sinning. It takes a thousand years for us to put all of the enemies of God underfoot and then the entire world is in a perfect place. And our joy is made complete. 
Yes. But read Luke 14. Let's see how Jesus says it. Whoever had that, Mandy had it. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Paul one time said, I'm not looking for what can be credited to your account here. I'm looking for what can be credited to you in heaven. The things that we do in this life affect that life. If you only give banquets for people that can give banquets for you, there is no reward for it. Okay. Now, how and why there are different levels of reward, I can point to things in Scripture, but ultimately, remember, Eric didn't choose this. God has. And what I'm trying to draw out in Scripture is to show you that it is not an everybody gets the same prize kind of thing. By the way, I can show you the same thing about hell. How many times have you heard that hell's the same for everybody? It is absolutely not. The Bible speaks of some being beaten with many blows and some with few blows. I can understand that. Well, <laughs> why is it hard to go the other way? But uh, hang on to that and uh, let's, let's keep going with this. I want to get into the uh, actual teaching in Acts and then we'll explore that some more. Okay? Um, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Let's stop the presses for a minute. When Paul's reminding them of the gospel, why does he not say, look guys, believe on Jesus, you're all going to heaven. When he reminds them of the gospel, why is the word heaven not even mentioned? Why is this off-world concept never covered? Better than that, why does he not say, Hey, look, guys, when we're all caught up to meet the Lord in the air while those damn Jews just suffer, why didn't he do that? He doesn't do that because this was not the hope of Israel. It was not what he had been taught. It's not what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament teaches that there'd be four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God would be on earth and that its sons would never die. And he knew that. And so that's all he ever taught. And he saw Jesus as the proof of it. And he saw no distinction between Israel and the church. At the time he's writing this, Israel is the church. you understand? Uh, his entire focus is on the fact that we'll be changed. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. You get what he's saying there? Yes. From a natural dude, we all got life. From this heavenly man, we're all getting the real kind of life. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Not going to heaven, made of something Heavenly. You understand? One is corruptible. The other is incorruptible. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. How much easier would it have been for him just to cut this short and say, hey guys, you're all going to just go to heaven. But you don't find that anywhere. You'll hear it repeated over and over and over in church. But you don't see it over and over in the Scripture. In fact, it's not there. 
Now, I'm not saying you don't go to heaven if you die today. Absent from the bodies present with the Lord, I'm saying that is not the goal of the gospel. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which is what they're waiting for. They're not waiting to go to heaven. They're waiting for the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. How many times have you heard that His coming would be in the twinkling of an eye? Did it say that? Read that carefully. What does it say will be in the twinkling of an eye? You will be changed. You're not going to go through a thousand year metamorphosis. The moment the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise first. This is what we read last week in 1 Thessalonians 4. And you are changed. Talks about why that must be and that death is put in death. Let me give you all some scriptures and acts. I'm going to let you read them. This will add some emphasis to how many times in the way in which the apostle said it. Then we're going to open back up for all of those questions and we'll see where they take us. But you've you got to get these scriptures in Acts. This is something to write down too. Now remember, one of the ways that Acts can be used as a book of theology is that when you don't know how to apply something that you've read in an epistle or in Jesus' writings, you can look to see how the history book of the church applies it. <coughs> For instance, when Jesus says, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And today I understand that there's a very Jewish understanding of that. You're baptizing them into those three characters, those three personalities. I get it. I didn't always understand that. But before I did, you know what I could do? I could look in the book of Acts and say, how did they understand it? Well, they baptized in the name of Jesus, so that must be fulfilling that requirement. Not just once, but more than once. In fact, there is never a recorded instance of an apostle baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is more than one occurrence where you see an apostle baptizing in the name of Jesus. So what would that lead a reasonable person to conclude? That they understood the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be the same as saying the name of Jesus. You all follow me? Follow that, follow that reasoning? So if we don't know what to do with some of the other scriptures, we can look to see how they're applied in Acts, and suddenly you can see it. And if you saw it once, that would be intriguing. If you saw it twice, it might be persuading. If you saw it three times, it might suddenly become convincing. And if you see it in nearly every chapter, then you'd almost be stupid not to pay attention, wouldn't you? Okay, turn with me to Acts 4. Uh, Bob, you read Acts 4.2. Uh, Joy, you got 4.33. Brandon, you got Acts 17.18. Cody, you got Acts 17.32. Gabe, you got Acts 23.6 Jennifer, you got Acts 24.15 So who's got 4.2? Uh, I do. Alright, read that out loud. Um, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You hear what they were proclaiming in Jerusalem? They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They weren't saying, believe on the name of Jesus and you too can go to heaven. Believe on the name of Jesus and you too can become rich. Believe on the name of Jesus and all your troubles and your bodily aches will go away. 
They were saying if you believe on the name of Jesus, you can be included in him so that you will be resurrected the same way he will. That's what they were put in jail for in Jerusalem for preaching. Okay, who had 433? I did. Read it, sweetie. In the great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. When they were persecuted, they get out of jail and they come back, they continue to teach about the resurrection. Now, from Paul's teaching, when they're teaching about the resurrection of Jesus, what are they teaching about it as? The first fruits. If he was resurrected, surely you can be resurrected. If you're in him, what happened to him will happen to you. This is the gospel that they preached. Don't you think that if that's what they're put in jail for teaching, and when they get out of jail, that's what they're teaching, that that would be a defining teaching for them? Would you go to jail for something that you didn't believe? Probably not, huh? Why do they not go to jail for teaching that the church will be sucked off the earth? Why didn't they go to jail for teaching that the church would go to another planet called heaven? Where everybody rides candy horses and eats lollipops and you get propped up by a jukebox when you die and there's a good fishing hole. And I mean, doesn't that seem kind of silly? Wait till we get to the book, end of the book of Acts. 1718. Uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The good, what is the good news about Jesus and the resurrection? He didn't say the good news that Jesus was raised, although that is good news. He said the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What's the good news? Guys, finally... There is somebody who has come who has shown us the way in which death will be alleviated for all of us. And it is not going to heaven. The way death is alleviated for all of us is in the same way his body was raised to never see decay. We will be raised to never see decay. Do you know in Acts 2 when Peter begins to preach to the uh, crowds, he shares with them from the Psalms that the Holy One would never see decay and David's still in the tomb and Jesus is not? Uh, that's Peter preaching. The very first time Paul ever preaches, first missionary journey, you know he says the same thing? He starts right there with David and says, the Holy One will never see decay and David is in the tomb to this very day, but Jesus is not. Why would they do this? Why is this always what they're talking about? Because it's the hope of Israel and it's the same hope we're supposed to have. Uh, 1732. Talking to the same group of people. When they heard about the... When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear, hear you again on this subject. It's not when they heard that we were going to Elysium. It's not when they heard that we were going to some paradise in the sky. It's when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Do you know what they believed happened when you died? The people he was talking to? Oh, you got it. That you went to some heaven place somewhere else, some off-world thing. In fact, the Greeks are the ones that introduced that to the church. It was a foreign idea to them that there would be a resurrection of the dead. Paul didn't explain why it was needed, and they didn't understand. Now today, the resurrection is a foreign idea to the church that Paul helped teach and found. Isn't that crazy? These are the people that 400 years later introduced the idea that everything earthly is bad, and to get away from it, we were going off-world. That was never instituted in the Scripture, nowhere. The earth starts in darkness, God interjects light, and the light changes the whole planet. 
That is the central theme of the Bible throughout. Okay, who had the next one? Raise your hand so I can see you. I did, 23.6. Okay, read 23.6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, hold this. I was taught about this. Oh, that crafty Paul. He's so sly. Because Paul knew that some were Sadducees and some were Pharisees, he simply interjected this so that the crowd would be divided and they wouldn't know what to do with it. Do you really think that the apostle of apostles and his words recorded by Luke was lying here? Do you think he was lying when he said, I'm on trial because of my hope in the resurrection? Probably not. Uh, probably if it's recorded in the scripture and he said it, it was probably a truthful statement. Did you hear the, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee? Why didn't he say, I was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee? Apparently, he didn't abandon that teaching. You know what is central to the teaching of the Pharisees? The single most distinctive fact? The resurrection of the dead. And he said, I am, present tense, a Pharisee. You know, Greek's an expressive language. There are lots of tenses he could have chosen more than there are in English. But he chose to put it in the present tense. I am a Pharisee. How about 24.15? Did I have that one? Oh, go ahead. My other half had it. I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I have the same hope in God as these men. Listen to what he said earlier in the chapter, verse 14. He said, However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that it is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. That's amazing. He said that it's the same hope as the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, if this is the hope that is portrayed throughout Scripture, how do we get so far off track? What questions do you have about the resurrection? Nick mentioned one about competition. For uh, You'll be able to see this on the screen. About what difference does it make? Well... Apparently, this life is a bit of a testing ground for the next. Uh, why God chose to set it up that way, we'll have to take it up with Him. But it certainly is. You see the scriptures just popped up? Philippians 3.11? Uh, I guess it's not big on the screen, is it? I'll scan where you can read that better. I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death and somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This word. You don't be thinking any questions you have. I just wanted to show you these. Anybody? Nobody has got a question about the resurrection? You're kidding me. Yeah, I wanted to know the order. Oh, the order. Okay. Um, the order. Let's start then in 2 Thessalonians 2. You're going to get an order from 2 Thessalonians 2 and we will go from there to Revelation. 
Y'all bored? Okay. I don't know what to do. I know y'all not used to talking to me when I'm behind the pulpit, but... Uh, okay. Let's pick up in 2 Thessalonians 2 and uh, see the order that he gives here, and then we'll go from there. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So what is the first thing that you should be looking for? A rebellion. A man of lawlessness. Somebody who fits this description and a worldwide rebellion. How will you know who he is? Anybody? Verse 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. So when you're looking at an order, what are you looking for? A rebellion, a man of lawlessness, somebody who is claiming God-like status, and what else are you looking for in the way of a building? Temple. A temple. Is there a temple there now? No. I know that that hurts everybody's feelings. That we're, it's like we're not saying that uh, the return of Christ is imminent. No, I believe that it's imminent. I just believe that there has to be a temple there because the book of Revelation mentions it, the book of Daniel does, the book of Ezekiel does, and Thessalonians does. I can't just ignore that. So there are some things you're looking for. Don't you know that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Before we read those next few verses, what are you looking for in order now? Somebody help me. A rebellion. Setting himself up in God's temple. Then sometime between the time that he does that and the very end, Jesus returns and destroys him with fire from his mouth and the glory of his coming. Do you think that the Thessalonians expected to see this? Why else would Paul say, don't be alarmed? Don't 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 get upset like this could have already happened. It's when you see these things. Why would he say that? If they were, were they just going to be the only ones that didn't get raptured? Right. Yes. And, and I promise I'm going into the first and second resurrection. All those things. We'll go to Daniel 12 next. Yes. When Paul is teaching this. Is this a revelation he had, or did he get this order from the Old Testament? Uh, Daniel 12. Let's go there now because Paul has insight into this that is not recorded prior to this. But the fact that there is a first and a second resurrection, that it is the end of the age, and that it begins a uh, messianic age, that was the hope of all of Israel. They were waiting for it. The term son of man was who they thought because of Daniel's prophecies would initiate it. Uh, when they said son of David, they believed that the son of David was the same as that. Uh, there's another phrase that they use too, the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. They believe that all of these men would initiate a resurrection and that that resurrection during that time period in messianic age would begin that would set the world straight. That was their hope. Now the few who did not believe that were called Sadducees 
and they had no interest in it because their whole livelihood was based upon temple sacrifice and their priestly positions. So that didn't concern them at all. They just wanted you to keep bringing money and keep sacrificing animals. They weren't interested in an age where you didn't need to do that. Uh, that's not to say every Sadducee was that way. Uh, that's the worst of the worst. Let's go to Daniel 12. You'll see more order here than Revelation 20. Yes? Uh, where it says... Uh, Well, if it comes back to you, let me know. Oh, I got it right here. Okay. Uh, and then the Second uh, Thessalonians two eight. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. What is that meant to mean right there? Is that literal or like? You mean does Jesus have halitosis? No, I <laughs> not mean that. I'm, I'm just picturing a tribulation movie that I saw where Jesus. Yeah, you. You got me. I, the Bible describes Jesus as having a double-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth, and I don't think that his tongue looks like a saber. Uh, I think it's speaking about the righteousness of his words. Uh, the answer for a lie is the truth. Uh, destroyed by the splendor of his coming, I think that there are literally angelic armies that are coming with him. And if we have time tonight, I'll show you the order in which all of these things, I believe, happen. I'm not telling you you must believe it. I'm just showing you something that to me makes sense, does not seem complicated. And have you noticed with these other views that in every theology book, whether it's post, whether it's mid, or whether it's pre, they always list pros and cons? You got that? I invite anybody to sit down and do that with what I'm teaching. Okay, I'm not suggesting that I have the comprehensive fashion between last week and this week. But I believe that we can sit down and show you from beginning to end a consistent message from the garden all the way to the last garden. Those other views cannot do that. There is always a giant block that is, but what about this? And there is no answer for it. And I don't understand how people could live with that. Uh, Now we may have a question like Nick did about motivation that can't be answered satisfactorily. that's something that is God's going to have. I mean, why would he choose a, a sacrificial system? Well, you know, those are things that God may reveal to us, but aren't plainly discernible from Scripture sometimes, his motives. As far as defined events in the Bible, there are some very defined events that really are not all that arguable if you just take the time to read them. What, what becomes arguable, honestly, the very best argument you'll ever hear are from the preterist. The most logical argument in the world is that Jesus was supposed to come back in the first century and that he must have. And it's wrong. It's way absolutely wrong. But as far as the abundance of Scripture and human logic, you can make almost an airtight case for it. But it's wrong. It didn't happen. There's no way around that. Uh, Some of these other things that are more popularly taught, you literally cannot go through three verses before you run out of ammunition. And those three verses all have very reasonable other explanations. What I want you to have is not a disdain for what other churches teach. I want you to have your finger on the pulse, the beating heart of the gospel. So that when you're... Mandy and I were at work Tuesday. And she handed off a guy to me to be tested. She went about her work. I came in just thinking, God, I feel like uh, garbage and I don't even want to be here. I looked in the man's eyes and I saw that something was wrong. Uh, his name not important, but I called him by his name and I said, where do you go to church? 
He didn't tell me he went to church. He didn't tell me he was a Christian. He didn't tell me any of those things. And he began to well up with tears. And he named a Baptist church that he goes to somewhere. And I said, what's wrong with you? And he began to tell me what was wrong. His daughter had died in September. His wife wanted a divorce because of the stress of the situation and they had a four-year-old living child. We're now in December. That baby died in September. He's taking a job offshore so that he could be somewhere else. Let me ask you something. How much help do you think it is to him to tell him he's going to be sucked off the earth? How much help do you think it is to him to say, don't you worry about it, you're, you're going to heaven? Immediately what came out of my heart and what came out of my spirit is there's a rebellion on this planet. It started with death, but God's putting it down. You've suffered the worst indignity a human being can. You've had to bury your own children. He never intended for that to happen. Those are enemies of God, and He is putting them down. It started with the man Jesus who has proven He has power over death. He's the very first one. And all of us will be resurrected if we cling to our trust in Him. And you won't have to be separated from your little girl. And I began to speak to him about that. This guy cried and hugged me. And before he left, we prayed together. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation, but it must be the Gospel. It cannot be some fairy tale that is similar. It must be the Gospel. I could have just looked at the dude and said, don't worry, you'll all see each other in heaven one day. And how many people do you think had already told him that? You know what he had never heard? What I told him. He had never heard that before. I went and got Mandy's Bible off of her desk, came and sat down with him and showed him Isaiah 25 about sitting on that mountain where death is destroyed. And you know what? He had never seen it before and he'd been in a Christian church all of his life. He said he was saved at five. How shameful is that? All of his life. So why am I passionate about this? Because it is the Gospel. And what we're seeing everywhere else it's kind of a weak, dead form of the gospel. Not everywhere. I, I was amazed and shocked and bewildered to find that of all of the 50 people that were with Bridges for Peace on my last trip there, they were from all the nations. I mean, from Japan, Australia, New Zealand, England, all over. They had this. They thought it was silly what Americans teach. They laughed at it. But they were a special group of people. So I was saying go to Daniel 12, right? Yeah. Yeah. Am I going to be able to get away with teaching 10 more minutes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who's with the kids? Yeah. Who? Okay. Am I going to get away with teaching 10 more minutes? Okay. Daniel 12. Y'all, who is holding him back? Here's my theory about who is holding the lawless one back. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Tell me, how were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered? How was Noah delivered? How was Israel delivered from Egypt? Right through it. There is never an instance in the Older Testament in which somebody is delivered by being snatched away. That was not in their mind when they hear the word delivered. When they hear delivered, they believe that God is going to cause them to persevere. Something that we Americans find distasteful. Why would we have to suffer? We're so entitled to everything. 
Michael is going to stand up and something is going to happen. A rebellion is going to occur. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is where the idea of two resurrections comes from. Some are going to rise to glory and some are going to arise to everlasting contempt. And because Daniel was looking at something that was far in the distance, right? When is Daniel writing? Anybody? Between 5 and 600 B.C. Okay? Paul's writing between 30 A.D., which very early, couldn't certainly be then, and 100 A.D. Somewhere in there. And it still had not happened in Paul's day. But as you get closer to two mountains in the distance, you can start to see that there's a gap between them and distinctions between them. What happens with this teaching is that everybody understood that there would be a righteous resurrection and a wicked resurrection. They did not all understand that there would be a gulf between them. That is New Testament revelation. Okay, and we're going to get there. Um, then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on the bank of the river and one on the... Uh, wait, I skipped verse 4. I'm sorry. Three. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Not just wise, but also leading other people. But you, Daniel, close up and seal these words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. You go look in the book of Revelation. I don't have time to teach you tonight and see what had been sealed and what Jesus opens, and guess what you find? You find the time period where people are crying out because of the death of the martyrs, and then the sun turns black in the day, and the moon turns blood red, and there's a resurrection. It's amazing. As you go on down through this in Daniel, and again, I don't have time, but you should read the chapter, you know what you find out? That the power of the holy people is almost broken. You find everywhere the description in Daniel that the church is suffering. But do you know what people do with that? They say it's not the church. That's Israel. But it is the church that arises and gets resurrected. It's just not the church that suffers. That kind of parsing exegesis is really silly. It's silly. Everything that is good goes to us. Everything that is bad goes to the Jews. Turn with me to Revelation 20. I told you I didn't have time to teach you about the seals, but I can teach you about the order of the millennium. Lindy, this goes back to your question. <clears throat> Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So now we have introduced into your schema where we have first uh, a rebellion, then a man of lawlessness, then uh, a temple that he goes into, and then Jesus returns and destroys him. Somewhere we have to fit in a thousand years. So the question becomes, where? And you're going to find it here. I saw the thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. Somebody got what? 
beheaded for their testimony and for the word of God. Hey, you want to know something interesting? Romans beheaded, but there's not a lot of Romans around now. Who else are the only other people group on the planet today that behead you? How about that? They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or hands. So when did they get beheaded? When there was a beast, a mark, and an image. What does that tell you? These people got beheaded during the tribulation. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. When did Jesus return? He returns after the rebellion. At His return, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, the dead in Christ rise to meet Him, then we who are alive. Yes? Quick side note. Um, well, this may sound silly. I might have just forgotten the answer. Um, but there was a, a belief whenever we were younger that the only way that you could be saved is if you got beheaded during this time. During this tribulation. The only way that you can then reign with Christ is if you get beheaded because you believe. Yeah. Is that... Absurd. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Absurd. Uh, yeah, because what we really have is a purgatory Christianity at that part. We have yeah. the good Protestants in heaven, the bad Protestants still here being punished for a while, and right. the Jews, they always get punished just for fun. And uh, after they've been punished for seven years, then they get good enough to be able to go to heaven. It is ridiculous mythology. Okay, I don't have the degrees that some of these men have, but I would publicly debate this any forum anywhere in the world because there are only about three scriptures that they can turn to. Only about three. That sounds arrogant. I'm sorry. I'm convinced of what God has given me and I'm excited about it. That's all that amounts to. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. And because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. When did the dead come to life? At his coming, they're the very first ones. So what starts the thousand years? His coming. This is why I place the millennial reign immediately beginning at his coming. Okay, The millennial reign is the thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. What two groups of people would rise from the dead, did Daniel say? The righteous and the wicked. So the wicked do not rise until the thousand years are over. Amazingly enough, when we read this, we hear about a thousand year reign, and at the end, there's a resurrection of wicked people, people whose names are not found written in the book of life, and they experience the second death. See, it's not as complicated unless you have to figure out some scheme, some schematic, where the church is not here. Then it becomes complicated. The perspective you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. What, what the prophets did not, at least, what I don't see clearly in the Older Testament, I don't see it until Paul separates it for us, is that the resurrection was in two waves separated by a thousand years. Uh, but Revela if we didn't have Revelation 20, I wouldn't get that. Uh, but praise God, we do have it. You know. Why would you even read it though if you're not going to be here? I mean, what difference would it make? <laughs> I guess it's just entertaining because that's what God wants for His church. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. What's the point of the resurrection? Reigning with Jesus. 
the priestly nation. What did he call his people on the mountain, on Sinai? You will be for me a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What did Peter tell us the whole church was? The same thing. A holy nation, a royal priesthood. When do we actually become that in the eyes of the world and everyone else? At the resurrection. This is when people are climbing under rocks trying to hide themselves because they are scared to death they were wrong. Uh, I probably don't have time to tell you, but let's go through this just verbally. And look, maybe we'll do this for a few weeks. I could do this forever. This is my single favorite subject in the Word. So all you got to do is stop by. All you got to do is mention it, anything. I talk about this at the drop of a hat to the point where people got sick of me talking about it and I've laid off it a few years. When we look at this, what we find, okay, is we find that there are signs that precede Jesus' coming. And he lists them in Matthew 24. Then at his coming, the dead in Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, says, rise to meet him. This would be an event that Revelation says every eye would see. How could graves all over the planet have dead come out of them and rise to meet Jesus in the air without seeing it? And by the way, where does Jesus return? To the Mount of Olives, which is east of us. Let's say that He's here and this is the earth in my hand, alright? He's got the whole world in His hand. Right here, and this is east. If you're in Australia, you're going to have a problem seeing Him, aren't you? Yes. But every eye's got to see Him. Yes. But what does our earth do? Does it sit stationary like this? No, it rotates. Every 24 hours, we've gone all the way around. He appears first over the Mount of Olives. And in a 24-hour time period, just like lightning that flashes in the east is visible in the west, just like the sun rises every day, Psalm 19 says, speaking forth speech that all of us understand, that light starts to wrap around the globe. And everywhere His light is visible, graves uh, give up their dead. And they rise to meet Him in the air, and CNN and Wolf Blitzer are wetting themselves because the TVs are all watching it. And there's an army assembling in the air. Those people who call this a wheelie theory and uh, pick on us, what they don't get is that the world has been waiting for this for more than 6,000 years and it is an event that every eye will see and have to anticipate and wonder and be concerned about. Such dread falls on men. The book of Revelation says they actually want the mountains to fall on them to be hidden from Him because it looks like the sky is fleeing from His presence. As that happens, if the dead in Christ go first, who goes after that? First Thessalonians 4, then we who are alive at His coming. That's another revolution. Isn't it interesting that Hosea 6.2 says He's torn us to part, but on the third day He will revive us? On the third day, that thing descends upon the earth. Jew and Gentile, one nation of God, the holy Israel, and it sets up its reign on the planet for a thousand years years. Now why have we never heard this? When I teach on this in Bible study settings, and maybe we'll do it in church sometimes, I actually take a globe and a flashlight and I turn off the lights and I show you about His appearing, the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. And then we rotate the globe so that you can see how it's happening. This is the Gospel. And you know what? You'll find traces of it and elements of it everywhere you look now that you know what to look for. You know what you won't find? off-world rapturing. You won't find it. The best that you can do is some allusion to Enoch, the only guy in all of the Scripture that didn't experience death. 
But incidentally, there's two end time prophets that are coming back that have the ability to cause revival and fire from the skies. We'll let you guess who they are, but I got money on Enoch and Elijah. I want to take your questions, but let's do this. I'll take all the questions. We can go through this as much as you want, but we got to open the doors and let the kids come in and out, or nobody will want to work in our children's church and we have to close down and sell gas and that kind of stuff. Okay? I love you. Uh, we're going to pray, but then keep going. Okay?